okay, I found this really special, awesome girl that I think is going to be the woman I spend the rest of my life with. And all of my problems are going to be over. I mean, all my gaps she's going to fill. And, you know, as far as the sexual desires and things like that, it's just going to all work together and I won't have to struggle anymore. Right. Well, that was, that's, that's not how that works. When pornography comes into your marriage, you're no longer standing in front of your husband by yourself. You're standing in front of your husband with multiple other women. I mean, it could be thousands of other women, um, most of whom have been airbrushed to perfection. In, in an instant, your marriage goes from this innocent relationship to this polluted relationship where you feel extremely insecure. And it's very, very traumatic and devastating for a woman. Dear young married couple, you're in a busy season of your life. You're probably working and involved in ministry. On top of that, you might even be parents or students. You're maxed, but you really want to stay connected in your marriage. And that's why we're bringing this podcast to you. I'm Adam King. And I'm Carissa King. And we work with busy couples just like you in our counseling office here in Sacramento, California. We also work with couples all over the world through online counseling And our couples are really just looking for ways to communicate with each other more effectively. Some of them are looking to heal from a breach in trust or find direction in fulfilling the purpose that God has for them. So come and join us as we have a conversation. We'll talk with therapists, authors, pastors, and other couples who will pour into us, giving us tools to become more intimately connected, get adventurous, and find purpose. Hello, everybody. Today, we're going to hear a unique story. And by unique, I don't mean uncommon. I think it's very, very common. But uh, it's unique because we don't talk openly in our circles about porn addiction. And we also don't talk about its recovery process, the steps that we take and what it looks like, maybe the dangers to avoid, the pitfalls to avoid. And so today... We're going to talk and hear about both. And so we're so thankful to have with us Nathan and Martha Driscoll. And they are the young married leaders at Christian Life Church in Mequon, Wisconsin. They've been married for 20 years. And we are just so thankful that they reached out about um, just sharing their story. And um, they initially just told us that they'd be willing to speak. And we said, really like uh like Bradley on our podcast that would be amazing um because like Adam mentioned this is something that we we don't hear about as often although we know from the research and from our counseling sessions mm-hmm. we know that it is so so common so um we thank you so much Martha and Nathan for um just being willing to be courageous and be here with us to share your story thank you for having us yeah, you're welcome. We would just it's, try to spring hope to someone today. Absolutely. Well, we are going to um, kick this off just by asking Nathan to start with um, sharing the beginning of this story, how the addiction started. And then um, as we transition, we'll hear more from Martha um, about where, where she entered the story. Um, so if you guys want to get, uh, get us started, Nathan, just by sharing um, how how this story began. Sure. Well, first of all, I never set out to be addicted to pornography. Um, it's certainly something that uh, I did not see coming. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were very good parents. They were godly parents. They were good examples. They were 
they were very involved at our church. You know, my, my dad drove the Sunday school buses. They were youth pastors at one time. My mom was president of the ladies auxiliary for the district. Um, it was a safe home. It was a loving home. Um, it was a godly home. And we were raised to love God. We were raised to, you know, to, to serve God. Uh, we knew right from wrong. And uh, I, you know, I tried to serve God. I loved God. Um, the first time I remember experiencing God's presence when I was sitting on my, on my mom's lap at the altar during a service, I was probably five years old. I just remember feeling the presence of God so intensely. I couldn't do, I, all I could do was just cry in his presence. I remember the little kids around me just kind of staring at me like there was something wrong with me, you know, but that, that experience is just embedded in my, in my mind. And um, I've been very sensitive to God's presence as a child into my teen years. Um, so I, one thing I want to say is that pornography is, person that gets addicted to pornography gets caught in pornography it's not necessarily because they're a disgusting person or that they're a vile person and they're trying you know they're just this wretched sinner it's it's more of a snare from the enemy and there's some things that that set me up for this um so in our home you know grew up in a united pentecostal church very very structured very 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 right and wrong you know um we had high expectations and, and kind of low tolerances for sin. And um, I didn't, I kind of fell into this performance trap where I was trying to earn people's respect, earn people's uh, affirmation through behavior and things like that. And um, uh, and I, I um so if I made a mistake, I would bury that mistake. I wouldn't. I wouldn't talk openly about it. Um, I would hide it, and uh, I be, there became a pattern, kind of, in my life of mistakes were hidden. And you know, if I could do things right, that was something that I wanted people to see. And uh, another thing that was going on is um, in in my home. Uh, in my home. My parents, I knew I was loved, but I didn't always feel loved because uh, something my parents would have no idea about was the five love languages. You know, back in that time period, there wasn't all this extra help for married couples and, you know, more psychological based uh, information. And um, uh, we did a lot of activities as a family, but we didn't have a lot of conversation about deep things. And... Uh, you know, when we did things right, we were praised, but we were we weren't necessarily verbally affirmed on a regular basis just because of who we were. You know, the words "I love you," hugs, physical affection was not something that was very common in our family, and and that kind of goes back to my parents' childhoods. Um, mm-hmm. It's not their fault; they were raised a certain way. My mom never experienced affirmation and um, and verbal words of affirmation when she was a child. She really didn't know how to do that. She her 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 love language was acts of service. She served us amazingly, um, a wonderful mother. But I had this void inside of me um, where I wasn't getting these this affirmation, and so I began to seek it out through performance, and um, and uh, you know, so I, I was kind of had this surface thing going on, but there wasn't much depth. Um, wow. 
I think this is a really good point. I mean, I know you're you're doing a great job at showing a void, but of course, just hearing it, it that's really good information for parents to take in to make sure that their kids know they're loved and to focus on speaking their love languages and and um, kind of showing that in in the loving atmosphere of the home, huh? So I guess you're saying that maybe it could have been a lot different if if it was a different climate in some ways. I think so. I think I think it could have been different, and it's not the fault of my parents at all. I, you know, sure. I, my parents gave me more than they had. You know, when it came to a heritage, they gave me a godly heritage that they didn't have growing up. You know, my mom grew up in a very fractured family, um, and. Uh, whole story there it's a pretty amazing story what god took her from and and you know how he transformed her life and then my father you know my my grandmother served god my grandfather didn't um you know didn't have yeah that they just weren't they god brought them a long ways um and uh i had a better start than they did but we're broken people in a broken world and and you know we we can only give what we have to give. Right. So, and um, what you have an example for. Right. Right. So they, uh, so I had this performance drive um, that I was trying to, trying to validate myself through performing well and, and meeting people's expectations and not letting them down. So um, people really didn't know me. I didn't really get close to people. Um, like I said, in our family, we didn't have a lot of deep conversations. Um, it was more activity based. We spent a lot of time together. We had a, we had a lot of fun. It was a great family. I love my family. Um, but uh, so I had this I had this void of affirmation through through words and physical affection. And my family just they weren't huggers. Didn't get a lot of that. Um, I found that girls. I found that I could get I could get both verbal affirmation and physical affection from girls. Um, so earlier on, I, I tended to spend more time with, with girls than boys. Um, and I learned to be very kind and complimentative and, um, you know, and, and it sought that, uh, sought that avenue, so to speak. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, so I had this pattern that was kind of set and, and, and I really hadn't done anything horrible at this point. You know, I just, I had these voids and I had, I was reaching out in areas that seemed to make sense to me, you know, and that was kind of where it was at that point. But, and also in this whole thing, I, I love God. I, you know, um, I, uh, I always try to do the right thing. I always did more that was asked. I tried to do more that was asked of me when people asked me to help out and do things like that. Um, it's good. It's important, I think, for people to see how your life was very um, godly, structured, loving. There were some gaps, um, which you think kind of honed that environment for um, performance and um, pleasing and then hidden sin. But um, this is quite common, I think, in our circles. And so I'm glad you're painting this picture for what um, how this began. So how did you get, how, how did you start to get that, that hook? 
in you? Well, um, it was, it was obviously it was by accident. I didn't go looking for it. Um, you know, and, uh, so the, the first time, well, you know, as a boy gets older, his body begins to change. Hormones begin to change and the female figure begins to become more exciting. You're more aware of it, you know? And, um, the the awareness of the female figure was was heightened for me through a very innocent and in a very innocent setting i was looking through sunday morning ads for toy sales you know as a young boy i wouldn't i would say i wasn't even 12 years old yet probably 10 somewhere around there and in order to get to the toy section you had to pass the lingerie section a lot of the sunday morning paper ads you know that came in the sunday morning paper and uh I would just kind of linger there a little bit before moving on to see what Lego set was on sale. And there was something there that grabbed me and, um, you know, God designed a man and a boy for that matter, to be attracted to a female body. That's the way he designed us. And the enemy would love nothing, nothing more than to pervert that attraction. And that's his agenda is to pervert the attraction that God's given us. And he, he often starts it before we're, 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 as young boys, we're aware of even what's going on. Um, and that before we have the ability to uh, respond appropriately. And I don't know if anybody else, I'm sure a lot of people are in the same boat I was in at the time. My parents didn't really talk to me about sexuality or puberty or coming of age or any of that stuff. So I was... I was really clueless as to what what was happening. Um, so that would that would happen, you know. I'd look toy sales. I'd come across the lingerie section ads, and then uh, then uh, then one year uh, the J.C. Penney Christmas catalog showed up at our house, and I was going through the Christmas catalog catalog, trying to find out what like new Lego sets came out that year that I might be able to get for Christmas. And their lingerie section was almost up there with Victoria's Secrets, you know? Um, and so that, beca- so then when I came across that, I began to hide the magazine, right? I kept it for a little while because I, I liked what I was seeing. How old were you at this time, Nathan? You know, that's all kind of fuzzy. I, I would say I was probably between the ages of 10 and 12, maybe, maybe a little bit younger young. than that, you know? Um, but I was somewhere around that, that period of time. And the pattern of, of shame, like the, the call the binge purge cycle, anybody that's familiar with porn addiction, binge purge cycles, um, had already begun to set in at that point because I would look at the magazine for a while, liking what I saw because it just, it just excites, you know, the male body. And, and until to the point I knew it was wrong and I shouldn't be looking at it, you know, but it was like a magnet that just drew me to it. And um, I got to the point where, I can't do this anymore. You know, what if my parents find out they're going to be so just, they're going to be so disappointed. You know, I I know God's not happy with this. I I know this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing it. And then you throw the magazine out. Well, you know, and then, then you look, I look through the Sunday morning ads again and uh, you know, it's just a back and forth, back and forth type type deal. It started then at that very young age. Um, At this point I had no clue about masturbation. I didn't know what that was. Um, and that, that changed for me when, uh, as I was going through puberty, um, you know, 
this might be a little uncomfortable for some people, but I think especially if you're a parent of a boy, it's something you need to hear. But, you know, so uh, boys, when they go through puberty, they have something called a nocturnal emission. Their, their body produces, you know, testosterone. The body releases it in the night. And uh, I happened to wake up at the end of a nocturnal emission that was connected to a dream. And I experienced the, you know, the, the sensation that comes with the, that climax while I was awake. Um, mm. And I found that I could replicate that. I mean, it was probably one of the most amazing things I'd ever felt at that point. Right. And I right. was not, I had, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't prepared for it. I, I never, it just, it was a very shocking experience. And at the same time, it was an amazing experience, right. you know? Mm -hmm. So when I found out I could replicate that, I began to replicate that and found that, you know, when, when you, that feeling was heightened when viewing the images of a female body and the pattern was set at that point, you know, and mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier on about the performance trap and, and I, I've avoided sharing failures with people. I avoided any area where I might fail because I didn't want to let people down. I didn't want to diminish the image that I had set, you know, in my life for other people to look at me and, and see me a certain way. Mm -hmm. And so the combination of not having deep conversations with my parents and, and not wanting people to know my mistakes kind of created this, this little cage where I felt trapped and this was something that I had to deal with on my own. I couldn't tell anybody about it because if they found out, they'd be so disappointed and I'd be so shunned um, by everybody. And uh, your reputation would be tarnished forever in your mind. Right. And I was extremely, I was extremely, um, I was extremely uh, performance driven. If I, if I got a 98% on a test, I was disappointed. If I didn't get a hundred percent, I was, I was deeply disappointed. Um, wow. you know, and, and, uh, yeah. Were there times, Nathan, that you tried to share it with anyone like a friend or mentor or parent? I didn't really have any close friends, like one-on-one -on -one friends. I, I hung out with a lot of people and we did a lot of activities together in the neighborhood and at school and things like that. But I didn't really have a lot of close friends that I really talked to intimately. Mm. And I think that was just yeah. an extension of my family relationship where I just, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't connecting with people. So I really didn't try to reach out with anybody in my, in my little circle of friends. Um, there were a couple of times I did try to reach out for help though. Um, mm. When I was older, about the age of 16. Um, what happened? I, uh, I, I realized that this was not something I, you know, I was trying to beat this thing and I wasn't able to beat it. And, uh, and I, so I went, I went to my, my mom one night. Um, I asked to talk to her in a living room. I called her in the living room and we sat down and, and I looked at her and I said, mom, I'm, I'm struggling with masturbation. And uh, I didn't mention anything about looking at the, you know, the ads or, or anything like that. And at 16, you were you were probably looking at more than just ads. You know, I I, I was and I wasn't. It was it was mostly. Um, I did find uh, a place where I could get access to some pornography, but I really wasn't delving into that that much at that point. It was really, okay. 
it was it was the Victoria's Secret catalog that would come in the mail. It was the Got Sunday it, morning yeah. ads. It was, you know, that kind of stuff that I would hold on to. And um, it wasn't until I got a little bit older that the pornography really become became more common. Um, and, you know, I didn't have access at that point really to computers. Uh, we didn't have a we had a computer in the home, but I didn't have access to Internet pornography at that time. Um, it was pretty much just paper stuff. And uh, so I, so I talked shared to mom. that with your mom. Right. Okay. I shared that with my mother and she kind of she didn't know how to respond, <laughs> you know, mm. and uh, she she kind of put her put her hands in her lap, if I remember correctly, and just kind of looked at the floor and was like, hmm, you know, OK. And uh, she really didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to say. I don't remember anything else that we talked about at that moment. Yeah. Um but she never brought it up again. Um, I didn't feel comfortable talking to my dad because I never had, I never had deep, meaningful conversations with my dad about anything, you know, of emotional uh, intensity or whatever. Right. Um, what message did that send you when uh, mom basically didn't have anything to say and you guys didn't talk about it again? Well, I felt like I was on my own. I felt like, um, you know, that was the one person that could really that I knew I could trust I knew that my mom loved me I, I you know I knew I was going to disappoint her but I knew that she loved me and I, I knew that she wasn't going to you know reject me per se but but in, in a but when she when she didn't know how to respond and I just felt very alone I felt very alone and isolated and kind of had this feeling like, okay, this is my burden to bear. This is something I'm going to figure out. I'm going to have to figure out on my own. And um, so I tried to do that. And, and I, I want, you know, I want people that are listening to understand that in this, in this whole time, nobody would ever guess that I was struggling. You know, I, I was in the altar every, every, well, pretty much every service we were in the altar. We had a very strong youth group. I was typically the last person praying in the youth group at the altar. I mean, my, my dad drove me home one night, the last people in church, and I was still speaking in tongues at the, you know, down at the altar. I love yeah. God. I was sensitive to his present presence, but I was isolated in this area and I was stuck. Um, yeah. And you felt oh. alone. You felt stuck and you were trapped in this, in this prison of, uh, um, I can't share this because, you know, what it would do to me and do to others and how they see me. But at the same time, you felt condemned. Um, I, I find it really interesting. You know, the devil only has two ways of getting at you. He has temptation and accusation. He would yeah. tempt you to look at it and then accuse you for doing it. Look how terrible you are. And you mentioned shame. So you, you were probably starting to feel a lot of shame you know, as time went on about, and shame, guilt is, guilt is, you know, being, feeling guilty for what you've done, but shame is telling you, like, it's about who you are. Right. Yeah. And that played into the whole performance thing where, you know, if people really knew who I was, right, if I was really transparent and honest and people really knew who I was, that they wouldn't want anything to do with me, right? I'd be rejected and, and pushed to the yeah. side. And, you know, as I got older, I saw, the reaction of church leaders and different things to other teenagers that were failing morally, you know, and I saw the way they responded and it was not an encouraging thing to see because, right. you know, these kids, these kids were kind of pushed out 
so that they wouldn't, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, it created it created fear inside of me as well. Um, yeah, you were determined to not be in the same boat as those kids and not be treated like they were being treated. Right. Mm. So yeah. maybe maybe fast forward now. You, you met your now wife. Right. And uh, maybe your thought process going into that, you know, a new relationship. Well, earlier on, I had said that I, I, I had learned to get a lot of affirmation, you know, both affection, both in affection, physical affection and verbal affirmation from, you know, from girls. And, um, yeah. mm-hmm. and I realized that I was heading for trouble. Uh, I realized that if I didn't create some kind of separation between myself and the, and, and girls, I was going to end up in a whole bunch of trouble. So mm. at a pretty young age, I decided that I was not going to date anybody until I found the girl, the girl that I thought was somebody I could marry. And, um, began to follow through on that. So when I was 15, I met Martha at a church camp in Wisconsin, in Shawano, Wisconsin. She was 13 at the time. I was very <laughs> impressed with her. Uh, you know, she came from a, from a smaller town. I came from Milwaukee, the Milwaukee area in Wisconsin, which is a mm-hmm. fairly decent sized metropolitan area. And she just struck me as very ladylike. Um, she seemed very godly, and she was. She had a sweet spirit about her. Um, mm-hmm. I was just very, uh, I wouldn't say I was love at first sight, but I was very taken by who she seemed to be as a person. And mm. and, um, and what did you think of him, Martha? <laughs> well, I would say definitely was not love at first sight. <laughs> I'm <laughs> not <ending> there. <laughs> No, I thought he was a nice, (laughs) I thought he was a nice boy, but yeah, he was, yeah, he was nice. (laughs) And you guys were young. We were so young. It's almost silly to talk about. That's how young we were. Right. It is, it is silly. I mean, it's crazy actually to think about where, where, you know, where relationships start, where they can end up. But Oh yeah. Well, we were 14 and 12. Oh really? Uh, So we could kind of. Really? I, I look back, oh my word, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, so we met when I was fifteen, she was thirteen, and uh I had you know, I vowed that I wasn't gonna go out with anybody back then. It was go out with somebody, right? Until right. Yeah. felt like I was ready for marriage or you know, felt like uh, I found one that somebody that was worth marrying. So uh we met the first year, the next year. I got Martha's address and I began to, we began to write letters back and forth the following year, you know, so that would have been 16. I got her, I got her address 17. I got her phone number, you know? And so then we began to write and call on the phone with our long distance calling cards that we spent (laughs) our hard earned money on. (laughs) And, uh, and then when I was 18, um, you know, we had, we had been calling now for, couple years writing for three years I think and I, I decided that yeah this is this is a really special girl and I could totally I, I think I'd like to marry her I, I think I think I should make this a legitimate relationship and I I let her know that I I really had strong feelings for her and that I would like to mm-hmm. like to start dating her and it went and I I shared that with her at um, my last year of youth camp um, while we were at youth camp at the camp 
you know, campgrounds where we met. Uh-huh. That was uh that was the beginning of our dating relationship. Um, but I, <laughs> our, our relationship was kind of funny because I would write Martha um, and she could probably tell you more about this, but I would write Martha letters and, and, and I would say a lot of things in the letters. Um, but then when I saw her in person, I was scared to death because I felt like I was just so far out of her league. I could stand around her probably about five, 10 minutes. And there were so many other the cool guys around that I just, I just felt so out of place. So I'd, I'd leave. And it, <laughs> and, uh, Martha was like, what's with this guy? <laughs> But because you had you you had all the time to focus on what words you were gonna pen, and then in person you're like, oh man, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pressure's yeah. on, right? Yeah, I've often and, teased him that he wooed me in with all his his guess, letters, fl- his flowery words. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> Do you think Nathan that um, you know the the idea of having a connection with a real woman, a real person um, was also difficult for you because there was that risk of rejection and the pornography didn't offer that rejection to you at all. I don't think I could have, I don't, I don't think that I would have at that moment, I would not have been able to identify that, but looking back, I would totally say that's what it was. Mm. You know, um, something I've learned now is that pornography really, is just one of many outlets that people or traps that people fall into as an outlet for emotional stress. And, um, you know, I didn't have a healthy way to deal with that as a, as a young boy or a teenager, it became an outlet for me. Um, when I felt vulnerable or, or, uh, when I, when I failed at something, right. Uh, it became kind of like a a self medication that feeling helped ease the pain and, um, and, and it, so it, it kind of, in some ways it made me a coward. Like I, I wasn't able to process emotional stress in a healthy way. So when there was emotional stress, I would run the other way. Um, and I think that that was what was kind of going on there as well as the shame that I had been living in that made me feel like I wasn't worth, you know, her attention or what wasn't as, as significant as the other people around. Um, yeah. Was definitely playing so, into it when you guys uh started dating and then um you know those early stages right before you got married was the discussion of pornography ever brought up oh no, no it wasn't and you know martha martha was so innocent in a lot of ways um so i did at one point when we were dating um tell her that I struggle. I had struggled with masturbation. And at this point I was doing, you know, these things are never, guys can get caught in this idea that they're beating it because it's been a while since they've done it. And I thought that I had beat it at this point when I'm talking to her, right? Because part of me is mm-hmm. thinking like, okay, I've found this really special, awesome girl that I think is going to be the woman I spend the rest of my life with. And all of my problems are going to be over. I mean, I, you know, she's going to help. She's going to all my gaps, she's going to fill. And, you know, as far as the sexual desires and things like that, it's just going to all work together and I won't have to struggle anymore. Right. Well, that was, Mm -hmm. that's, that's not how that works. But, um, so I thought I was doing better at this moment in my life. And I told her that I had struggled with masturbation and her response was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) I don't know if she even knew what masturbation was. No, I honestly, I don't even remember that conversation. 
Wow. Yeah. So yeah. obviously it didn't have an impact on her because she was clueless about it. Right. Um, and when she responded that way, I was like, I am not even touching the pornography thing. I'm not even going there with that. Like, yeah. you know, so, um, and, and actually, so again, you were left to deal with it alone and, right. and not by Martha's fault at all. That It was just another circumstance that added to that, um, kind of that equation where it was like, you're, you're left alone again. And the naive right. thought of, of once I get married, Mm-hmm. These desires will go away. This addiction right. will stop. She'll fill the holes. <laughs> and I won't feel emotionally stressed in the future. Yeah, what a joke, eh? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> that's what, I mean, that's what happens, right? Right, right. right. So, I mean, stress, emotional stress is a part of marriage. That's it, you just There's no way around that. It's part of marriage. It's a part of parenting. It's, it's just a part of life. And uh, there is no escape from that. Go ahead and talk about like, so you, you guys got married, not just brush over that, but you guys got married mm-hmm. and then what happened after that? Well, before we go there, let me just add one more instance. You had asked Adam if I had ever, I think you had, you Adam had asked if I had ever tried to share with somebody or maybe that was yes. you, uh, Krista, but uh, there was one other person I tried to share um my struggle with it was my senior year. It was the same, it was the same at the same camp where I told Martha that I wanted to pursue, you know, a real relationship with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it was my youth pastor at the time. And, uh, the, the last service of camp, you know, it was a powerful service. I'm getting ready to go to Bible college. And, um, I just, I was just thinking to myself, I cannot take this struggle with me to Bible college. This has got to be taken out of my life. I just, this has got to end. So I approached my youth pastor at the service and I, I said, you know, I, I approached him. I said, I need to tell you something. And, and his response was, he put his hands up like to stop me, you know, like just put his hands up hmm. to just stop me from talking. He said, Nathan, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Wow. And I was shocked. I, I didn't expect yeah. that reaction. I didn't even get a chance to start telling him what I was going to say, you know? Um, and so that was kind of the nail in the coffin for me, as far as reaching out for help anymore at that point, I figured, okay, this is, this is my burden to bear. This is my beast to kill. You know, I, mm. I'm going to have to do this on my own. Um, wow. So That's I sad I because to, I, I'm sure you really built up to, to that conversation. The confidence. Yeah, you know, I really wanted it, to yeah. be rid of it. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, and every guy I think that struggles and it prays that prayer, God, would you just take it away from me? Right? Just just mm-hmm. take this away from me. I don't want to struggle with this. Would you please just take it away? And, you know, God's all about processes. And looking back now, I can see that God used this to teach me how to walk through you know, emotional stress and process things and trust him in a way that at the time I didn't. Um, but anyway, uh, talking about how we met, um, our marriage. Yeah. Um, we had a really rough start in our marriage. I would say we had, you know, going into marriage, of course, our expectations were very lofty. We thought, you know, we're going to get married, have this amazing life, like never have any issues. Like I'm sure most people think, (laughs) right. Right. And, um, so I grew up four hours away from Nathan. We had a long distance relationship our whole dating life. And so whenever we were together, it was just directed attention at one another. We didn't have any distraction. It was just, you know, him and I having a great time. 
And so when I moved, I was, I turned 19 one month after we got married. I moved four hours away from all my friends, all of my family. I had met his parents a couple times. Um, and I had a couple friends that I kind of knew down here just from, you know, different events throughout the year, but I didn't really have any close friends. And so I'm super young. I mean, this brand new city. Um, and I just, um, I began to have emotions that I did not know existed inside of me. <laughs> I was Aww, dealing with some yeah. anger and just some sure. things surfaced right away for me, actually. Um, and then three months after we got married, I got pregnant. Um, I like wow. to joke that I... I went to the library and tried to get a book on natural family planning, but instead I think I got the book that said how to have a family naturally. <laughs> so we were pregnant really um, early, which obviously then you have the hormones going and everything else. Wow. Um, yeah. And Nathan was I, something we didn't mention. Nathan was actually the youth pastor at the church that we, we still attend now. Um, it was a very small church at that time. And going into our marriage, I was really excited that I could come alongside him and minister. It was one of our biggest conversations probably before marriage. It was a passion of his. He really felt a passion for youth ministry. And I, I thought mm -hmm. I did. Um, but I had a couple of leaders, very close leaders in my life, that had behaved very hypocritically and had mm -hmm. done some things with multiple girls within my church. And I knew, I knew enough at that time that it, it placed seeds of mistrust. I wouldn't know to the extent of what all went on until much later in life, but it was enough that I felt, um, you know, just, I had kind of this, it was just a small little, you know, mistrust already mm -hmm. inside of my heart. In men um, or in leadership or both? both? I would say both yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another and that made its way into your relationship with Nathan as well? Yeah, right. there's kind of something set inside of Martha, determination that she would, well, how would you say it? Well, um, I know I mentioned to Nathan, I don't know if I mentioned it more than once, but I did tell him about, you know, what had happened with these men. And I said, you know, if that ever happened in our marriage, I don't, I don't think I could stay with you. I just, I don't mm. think I would be able to let that happen and be okay with that. Yeah. And so I think that also was another little fear then in him to ever come clean to me. Right. Um, but so I started kind of, um, once I moved here and we were working with the youth, I was not expecting to feel threatened, but I think because of those past experiences and I, I felt very threatened and I kind of started withdrawing the girls in the youth group you right. saw the girls in the youth group as a threat so instead of being able to reach out to them you actually began to withdraw right yeah and so i guess mm, then yeah. it left him feeling like he was doing ministry on his own which was an extreme disappointment to him oh, gotcha um yeah so that was one area that we really struggled and then he was actually diagnosed with cancer six months after we were married oh, um went through you're so young yeah, yeah. Uh, major surgeries, chemotherapy, um, and I had a baby. Yeah, just right before our one it's year like anniversary. Every transition that you can think of <laughs> happened oh, yeah. in one year. Right. Well, and there was even more to that. We bought a we bought a house. Um, we actually closed on the house two weeks before we got married. Um, we, we couldn't move into it after we were married. We actually stayed in my parents' basement because it wasn't in good enough condition to move into. <laughs> we mm. got married, wow. so we so 
so we were remodeling a house that I, I'd like to say it should have been torn down and rebuilt. But um, I was also going to school full time at at a at a Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design, and um, wow. so we just had a full plate, and we were, we were doing too much, and we were spread too thin, and we weren't connecting. Um, and then there was that added drama of here's something Martha and I had talked about doing or so excited about it. And, and then instead of being something that unified us and brought passion to our marriage, it was actually causing division. And there were seeds of anger and bitterness being sown in my heart towards Martha, which right away, there's that emotional stress, right? right. That, that emotional stress is coming into the relationship now that I thought was going to save me from emotional stress. <laughs> so, so I began to struggle secretly, even I would say, pretty quickly after we were married once all this stuff started falling right. apart yeah just fell back into the old pattern and the and the art school was not a good environment either i was dealing with temptation you know just mm. it was not a good environment yeah um, and so how quickly um after you guys got married i mean you said it was very quickly that you started struggling again with the pornography um but how quickly until it came to light well you know, the, the cancer, oddly enough, I feel like the cancer God used in our life to, to kind of like, it's kind of like him saying like, okay, guys, it's time to settle down and get serious. You know, like mm. there's, there's more serious things going on than what you guys are stressing out about. And, and, um, the, the cancer actually put me in a place where for a while then I, 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 I was doing really good. Cause I, you know, um, I just spend a lot of time reaching out to God. Um, it, it's like all the, the the fractures between us kind of evaporated for a little while. Yeah. Um, and so that, that actually, I think that in some ways it kind of saved our marriage at the beginning. Um, but uh, that's not really the question you asked me. <laughs> so no, so okay. when did yeah. it surface again? Well, you know, Martha and I went on with life for another seven years. And, um, things with, she never, we never kind of came together very well with the youth ministry. Eventually that fell off. Um, there was a real painful experience with that, um, as well that caused some, there's just, there's some things we experienced in that ministry that weren't handled very well by leadership. You know, I, I was young. I did some things that were kind of dumb and, and, uh, the way it was handled and everything, it just created a, a bad experience, which then fairly alienate, further alienated me from the leadership in the church. And, okay. and I, I began to die internally. I just, you know, the, the cancer that had been in, inside of me, is getting to the point where I just, I was becoming a shell. So kind of transitioning into when uh, Martha found out. Um, Nathan, where were you? Kind of give us um, a description of, of where you were at that point. Nobody on the outside would have known probably there was anything wrong, first of all. Mm-hmm. You know, Martha and I on the surface looked like we were doing great. And Martha really didn't have a clue. I, I hit it really well for Martha yeah. um, that I was struggling with, with pornography and had this deep, dark secret. Um, she knew, I think, that there was something wrong in our relationship, and um, but she, she couldn't she couldn't put her finger on it, and uh, but I had gotten to the point where I could not control it at all anymore. I was 
kind of being driven by it. And I began to realize just how far it had taken me. Mm. Um, so it had escalated quite a bit then from occasionally looking at a pornographic website to now it was overtaking you. Yeah, I, you know, I would seek it out. I, I would seek it out. Um, I didn't even have a smartphone at the time, but I would, you know, I'd look up um, images and things like that at work yeah. when I was on a job site. Um, I I was I was dying inside spiritually. Um, you know, we, Martha and I had talked about how the youth ministry was something we had really talked about earlier on. Well, um, that was no longer in our in our present. Just due to just um, it was just not something we 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 just weren't we weren't in that anymore. And uh, when we step when I stepped down from youth ministry, it's kind of like I gave up. And I began to just fall apart internally. And the, and it was like the any restraint I had was beginning to deteriorate at that point. And um, I had put my hopes, really honestly, in religious service, right? That performance-driven mindset. Um, I didn't have the relationship with God that I needed to sustain me. I was trying to sustain myself. And... Um, I wasn't being honest with God. I wasn't being honest with people. I was I was following the pattern that I had started when I was a kid, um, and so I had this deep dark secret that was was killing me. And I began to realize that that this was way more than I could handle because I was having thoughts about people. You know, I was I began to realize that if I had the opportunity, I would probably have an affair. And not because I, I wanted to. I didn't think I would. I would. I didn't think I would be con- able to control myself. I, I don't think I would have been able to say no, if I was in the wrong situation with the with the wrong person. You know, I don't think I could have said no. And and I began to experience uh, depression and fear. Um, and I began dealing with thoughts of suicide. Actually, I I began thinking about well, you know, Martha's always told me that if if I ever was like any of those other guys, she would, she would leave me. She'd never, she'd never forgive me. And, and I was like, she can't, I can't tell her she can't find out about it. And um, I began to think about what if I just disappeared and never came back? What if I just drove off somewhere and nobody ever heard from me again? That would be better. That would be better than them finding out and realizing that I was a fraud and that, you know, they would all be embarrassed. My kids would know and they'd be embarrassed. You know, they'd be embarrassed and disappointed. And um, I thought about driving my van off of a high-rise freeway when I was driving home a couple times, you know. Um, so you had really dipped to your lowest low. And and also this sin has been magnified. Yeah. Bigger than God's for, forgiving grace. Like it's because I guess you've been staring at it so closely. You haven't let it outside of the cave that you're in to face you know, God and what he can do for you. Absolutely. And that wasn't, and it had always been that way, right? Because I felt like my sin was too big for people to forgive, too too big for people to love me in spite of my failure, right? I had to earn their love and respect by performing, by not failing and not making mistakes. And um, I had just carried that into my adulthood, Oh, I, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to beat this thing. 
And I didn't have the courage or the strength to go to anybody for help anymore at that point. I had already tried a couple of times with a couple of people that I thought of anybody I could go to. Right. So, um, so one, one night, well, I was home working on the house that became my excuse to miss, miss church was I was working on the house. And uh, when Martha was at church, I was in the, one of the rooms I was supposed to be working on. And I just, I got very real with God. Um, and I told him, I said, I can't do this anymore. I, and I can't save myself. I'm not strong enough for this. This is going to destroy me. It's going to destroy my marriage. It's going to destroy my home. It's going to destroy my family. And I said, God, I do not have the strength to go to anybody for help. I, I just can't do it. I said, but I'm willing to go through anything you want to put me through. If, if you need to call me out, if you need to bring us some, some super uber spiritual evangelist through and he needs to call me out in the middle of service while I'm sitting there on the pew, you go ahead and do it. But I can't do it myself. I need you to step in and save me from this. And um, I was just, I was at my end at that point and I just laid it out to God. Um, I wouldn't say that it was a super emotional moment, but it was a very real moment. I was very honest with God at that point about where I was at and how I felt. And that's, it wasn't long after that that Martha found out. All right, friends, we really hope that today's conversation was beneficial for you. If you're wanting some help, some individual or couples counseling to help with broken trust in your marriage, this is a very difficult problem to solve by yourself. We'd love to come alongside you and help you through this process. Just reach out. Give us a call at 916-678-1797 or shoot us an email at hello at dearyoungmarriedcouple.com. No matter where you are in the world or in your marriage, we can set up a counseling session with you and we can work toward healing. We also post marriage advice regularly on our Instagram, which is at Dear Young Married Couple, and we'd love for you to join us there in conversation. All right, see you next week.